Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov was born in the Russian city of Simbirsk along the Volga River on April 22, 1870. As a baby, he had two prominent features that remained his defining characteristics throughout his life. An oversized head, and what onlookers described as Mongol eyes. By all historical accounts, his Van Dyke-style goatee, the third of his trademarked looks, wouldn't appear till later in his life. He was the fourth of nine children. His parents were capable of supporting such a large brood thanks to the fact that his mother was born as the daughter of a wealthy German doctor, and his father served the Russian czars as an inspector of schools. The importance of education had been instilled upon him at an early age, and he retained this belief even after he had shed his given name. The self-proclaimed Lenin believed in his ability to teach the world, stating, Give me four years to teach the children, and the seed I have shown will never be uprooted. He also said, A lie told often enough becomes the truth. Vladimir Lenin would lead the revolution that overthrew 400 years of Russian czars, his would be a revolution that would reverberate around the world. Although the revolution's end product was hardly the communist utopia imagined by Marx, Leninism has proven incredibly difficult to uproot. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is about the life and legacy of the man who birthed communism into the world, Vladimir Lenin, the formative years of a revolutionary. Russia has long been a land of contradictions. Exceptionally vast in land, but lacking in arable land, Russia seemed to have one foot in the modern world, largely because Peter and Catherine both dragged the nation kicking and screaming, while the other foot was hopelessly trapped in the feudal past. Tsar Alexander II was one of those who sought to become great through continuing the advancement of Russia into the modern age. He emancipated the serfs. Stock holdings emerged throughout the economy. He set up military districts for conscription and advanced the railway system that the Germans would one day use to slip Lenin behind enemy lines. He even reformed the judicial system and removed some of the stigma that came with being Jewish in Russia. He was on the path to become worthy of the moniker Great that had been bestowed upon his grandmother, Catherine. But he never cut an imposing figure. Mark Twain met the Tsar in 1869 and wrote that here was a man who could open his lips and ships would fly through the waves, couriers would hurry from village to village, a hundred telegraphs would flash the word to the four corners of an empire that stretches over a seventh part of the habitable globe. And yet, if I chose to, I could knock him down. If I could have stolen his coat, I would have done it. We spent a half hour idling through the palace, and then the imperial family bade our party goodbye and proceeded to count the spoons. American President Woodrow Wilson revealed to us that the easiest way to upset someone is to change something. Through his reforms, Alexander had substantially altered the entire way of life for the people of Russia. Quite a few of them were upset, and he narrowly survived an assassination attempt in 1866, and then another one in 1879. Proving the third time isn't always the charm, he avoided assassination three more times in 1880. Unfortunately, he wasn't quite as lucky in 1881, 
and was finally killed via a lobbed bomb. It turns out that the most reformist czar in history wasn't quite liberal enough for a pro-democracy terrorist cell that had named themselves as the People's Will. Vladimir Lenin was 10 years old when Alexander II became the past, and his 36-year-old son, Alexander III, emerged in the present to place most of his predecessor's reforms on hold. The people's will was violently suppressed by the new Russian voice of God, and far-fetched dreams of democracy would have to wait. Although Alexander II had meant well in freeing the serfs, it had thrown the country into a frenzied state of chaos. His father had warned him that serfdom was a gunpowder magazine underneath the state. By deciding to grant the serfs freedom without any land redistribution as part of the process, Alexander had lit the gunpowder's fuse. To allow the serfs any chance of survival, the state had leased to each peasant an itty-bitty tiny plot of land. It was so small that it would take 49 years of tedious manual labor to pay back the loan. For a society whose life expectancy was on the low side of 30 years, change had only brought more of the same to the people of Russia. In what would foreshadow Russia's difficulties in its ill-fated transition to democracy in the 1990s, when a few oligarchs would buy up all of the important private businesses at the onset, Russia's landlords took the paltry sum given as reparations by the state in exchange for their serfs and banked it. Now they should have invested this money and invented ways to maintain their land's productivity in the absence of its workers. Pocketing the money only enabled them to maintain their lifestyle for five to six years. As their money in the bank declined, time began ticking down for the nobles of Russia. Thus, Alexander had managed to threaten the lifestyles of all of his citizens in one singular moment of progressive change. Productivity declined across the country, and in 1863, the nation experienced more than 2,000 separate peasant uprisings. The killing of the progressive Alexander II had brought about more repression rather than democracy. Fearful that he would share his father's fate, Alexander III massively repressed his people rolling back popular reforms, including an unreleased proposal which his predecessor had claimed was the first step towards constitutional governance. It was in an era of repression that the people's will reformed, and other terrorist groups emerged from the shadows to plot once more. Revolutionary leader Sergei Stepan Karczynski admitted to his adherents that while terror is a terrible thing, there is only one thing worse than terror. It is to endure violence without a murmur. It was at a picnic gathering that radical groups, including the fabulously named Liberty or Death groups, decided that the only course of action was to assassinate another czar. It was among these groups that history discovered the name of Alexander Olenov, Lenin's elder brother. An extremely dedicated student, Alexander's one flaw, according to his younger sibling, was that he will never be a revolutionist, explaining that on his last summer visit home, he spent his time preparing a dissertation on aniline worms and worked constantly with his microscope. A revolutionist cannot possibly devote so much time to the study of worms. Lenin and his brother grew up in a world that seemed impossibly far away from the life of a revolutionary. Vladimir described his mother as a saint. She would go on to bankroll the life of her son well into his third and fourth decades of life. 
His mother, Maria Alexandrova Blank, was the daughter of a Jewish man who chose to defy the Tsar and raise her six children as Lutherans. She didn't believe in public displays of affection, but remained deeply loved by all of her children. She deeply valued education and would have been proud of the work that her eldest son had been doing regarding his annelid worms. The Olenov family were wealthy enough to have their own summer home in the country courtesy of Vladimir's grandfather. The future dictator spent tranquil summers beneath the cultivated apple, plum, and cherry trees that lined the property. Before he found Marx, he was enthralled by Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. The book inspired afternoon games with his brothers and sisters playing Civil War, during which Lenin always took the role of a northerner, preferring to play the parts of Lincoln, Sherman, or Grant. His love of tactics translated nicely into a passion for chess. And although I doubt that the authors of Netflix Queen's Gambit took any inspiration from Vladimir, a number of scenes would seem familiar to those who have studied Lenin. For instance, he regularly played and won simultaneous chess games. He would also play in his sleep, subconsciously calling out his countermoves. Lenin was described by classmates as a walking encyclopedia who could intelligently comment on the works of Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, as well as the writings of Westerners Voltaire and Rousseau. The only class he struggled with was logic, for which he received marks of B's as well as the occasional C. Everything about the young man seemed to exude intelligence. Take, for instance, the words that one classmate would use to describe a young Lenin. He was rather short, but powerfully built, with slightly hunched up shoulders and a large head, slightly compressed at the sides. He had irregular, and I would say unhandsome, features. Small ears, prominent cheekbones, a short, wide, and slightly squashed nose and in addition a large mouth with yellow, widely spaced teeth. With no eyebrows on his freckled face, Olenov had longish, blonde, soft, and slightly curly hair which he combed straight back. But all these irregularities were redeemed by his high forehead, under which burned two fierce little brown eyes. His ungainly appearance was easily forgotten in conversation, under the effect of these small but unusual eyes which sparkled with extraordinary intelligence and energy. That extraordinary intelligence left him with no real friends. Rather than being liked, Vladimir was respected by his classmates. His father played a strong role in instilling in his children a passionate love of education. He had served in the bureaucracy of the reform-minded Alexander II, serving to supervise the opening of nearly 400 schools in western Russia. His mother's innate need for defiance ensured that her children had access to all forms of literature, even books that had been banned by the newly crowned Alexander III. That Tsar's coronation brought considerable change for Vladimir's family. The new education minister felt that Russians shouldn't attempt to rise above their predetermined station. Schools began to phase out Western classics in order to spend more time learning the roles of coachmen, servants, cooks, laundresses, and small shopkeepers. At age 54, Vladimir's father succumbed to illness during the winter. Lenin was 15 years old when he was asked to serve as his father's pallbearer. His elder brother had just turned 19 and began to act as the presumed head of the family. After their father's death, the two siblings grew apart as the elder Alexander, whom the family referred to as Sasha, took the task of keeping his younger brother in line. Soon, he left home to study at St. Petersburg University. 
historian Philip Pomper, author of Lenin's Brother, The Origins of the October Revolution, explains that his transformation from A-plus student to terrorist was a slow march that came from an internalization of his family's ideals, which encouraged scientific endeavor and a sense of duty to society. Tsar Alexander III had shut down the reforms of his predecessor, believing that the freedoms jeopardized his position as absolute ruler of Russia. The direct consequence for his family had been the untimely forced retirement of his father, who had died shortly after being let go. In college, he was exposed to authors who promoted those with a sense of duty to do something in order to alleviate the suffering caused by Russia's archaic political, social, and economic systems. The elder Olenov became a disciple of nihilism, an individual who rejected religious and moral principles under the assumption that life itself is meaningless. Rather than drifting, he began to commit his life to serving the people, eventually believing that the best way to help was to remove the Tsar himself in order to pave the way for a government which took care of the needs of the less fortunate. By his senior year, the meetings for the St. Petersburg faction of the People's Will were meeting in Olenov's own apartment. Historian Victor Sebastian, our main source for this series, refers to the assassination attempt as laughingly amateur. Fifteen people were involved in the planning, far too many to keep the deed quiet. In fact, the secret police, known as the Alcana, were fully aware of the plot and were confidently waiting for the opportune time to make an arrest. That time came after one of the plotters had been arrested on an unrelated charge a few days before the intended date of the attack. When police searched the man's apartment, they found it laden with explosives and incriminating letters. Each were traced back to Olenov, who was an excellent student, but an amateurish terrorist, who had checked out his books regarding the principles of bomb making from the university library, in addition to using checked out equipment from his science classes to design and build the three bombs that were intended for the Tsar. He had funded the entire operation by selling the gold medal that he had received for his paper on annelid worms. It turns out that Lenin had been wrong about whether or not you could be a revolutionary and still care about worms. Show trials were already well established as a part of the Russian judicial system at this point in history. The decision of the court was regularly predetermined before any evidence was ever presented. Sasha Olenov was arrested a few hours before the attack had been scheduled to commence. He admitted his guilt and heroically attempted to prevent his co-conspirators from taking any blame. But his apartment was littered with incriminating information. His mother begged the authorities to go easy on her son, and due to her connections was allowed to see him before the trial began. Upon being asked why he had resorted to terrorism, Sasha tearfully replied, What can be done, mother, when there are no other means available? At the end of the four-day trial, Olenov read the following prepared statement. Terror is the only form of defense, the only road individuals can take when their discontent becomes extreme. We students are encouraged to develop our intellectual powers, but are not allowed to use them for the benefit of our country. Among the Russian people, you can always find a dozen men or so who are so utterly devoted to their ideas and take the misfortunes of their country so much to heart that they do not consider it a sacrifice to die for their cause. There is nothing that can frighten or intimidate such people. All 15 of the defendants were sentenced to death, but the Tsar commuted 10 of those. 
Lenin's brother was one of the five that hadn't been altered by Alexander's forgiveness. Sasha had hesitated in asking for leniency, fearing that it would undo the good that he falsely believed he had done in publicly proclaiming his dedication to the cause during the trial. On May 4, 1887, he was hung to death. The gallows used for the event only held three, so Sasha and one of his conspirators had to stand watch, witnessing their friends die first. When it came time, he kissed the cross offered by the priest as a form of last rites and spoke his final words, Long live the people's will. His 17-year-old brother was in the midst of a geometry test during the deed. His mother had believed that she could change the Tsar's mind. Thus, no one had informed Vladimir that his brother had been sentenced to death. The death was shocking. Dmitry Mendelev, the creator of the periodic Table of Elements, was one of Sasha's professors. Upon hearing of his pupil's demise at the hand of the government, he ranted against these accursed social questions, this needless, I believe, enthusiasm for revolution. How many great talents is it destroying? While the public spectacle was meant to deter threats to the throne, it had the opposite effect on a young Vladimir Lenin. It was this event that turned a young, intelligent chess player into the leader of a violent communist revolution. Pomper tells us bluntly that Vladimir stepped on the revolutionary path because of his brother. Before this point, Vladimir did not read revolutionary literature or show any of the typical signs of someone on the way to a revolutionary career. Things changed dramatically after the death of his brother. Sebastian describes the event as directly resulting in a young boy who rarely thought about politics becoming radicalized almost overnight. This was the first defining moment for Vladimir Lenin. Sebastian reveals to us that Lenin was driven by emotion as much as by ideology. His thirst for revenge after his elder brother was executed for an assassination plot against the Tsar motivated Lenin as powerfully as did his belief in Marx's theory of surplus value. The aftermath of an infamous public crime doesn't end with the execution of the criminal. Family members are forced to deal daily with the abuse and public shame that comes because of their loved one's crime. Neighbors began to shun the family. Friends were no longer willing to sit down and play a game of chess with Vladimir. The abuse grew so unbearable that the family felt forced to move to a new province in order to start over. This was all despite the fact that an attempted assassination of the Tsar wasn't all that shocking of a story. The population of Russia was so disgruntled with their lot in life that there were nearly 20,000 government officials who were assassinated during the final 25 years of the reign of the Russian Tsars. Violence was so common that rather than shock, it created a public atmosphere of resentment and indignation which breeds in the ranks of Russian society one avenger after another. Lenin was just another in a long line of citizens that sought revenge for the loss of a loved one. Sasha felt that there had been no other avenues available to him. He was partly right. Jury trials had been suspended after Vera Zaslich had been found innocent despite clear evidence that she had shot a general at point-blank range in a revenge attack for the flogging of a student who had merely refused to salute. While the near-daily murders of government officials caused more shrugged shoulders than outrage against the revolutionaries, the death of their loved one changed everything for the family. 
In addition to being shunned and cut off from their support system, the family had to go through the various stages of grief that come with the sudden loss of another family member. For a long time, Vladimir blamed himself for not being able to spot the signs of his brother's descent into such a nefarious world. He began to hate himself for the times that he had cursed his now-deceased brother in what had been typical brotherly squabbles. At the same time, however, he wanted to understand what had happened, and he began to seek out the books that his brother had read, opening himself up to a world of utopian possibilities. One of those works was by Peter Takov, who optimistically claimed 60 years prior to the Russian Revolution that it is Russia's backwardness which is her great fortune at least from the revolutionary point of view. In the West, the social order is based on wide support of the middle class. In Russia, this class barely exists. 85% of Russia were peasants. What holds things together in this country, he asked? Just the state, i.e. the police and the army. What is needed to make this state fall into fragments? Not much, he answered two or three military defeats, some peasant uprisings, revolution in the capital. 1917 would provide all three elements, with World War I providing the military defeats. Peasants would rise up in order to seek better working conditions, and Lenin would lead the armed revolt in the capital. It was in his early writings that Lenin began to form the opinion that the revolution would come from the peasants rather than the urban proletariat, a group that didn't even yet exist within the agrarian Russian state. This would fly in the face of the theories of Karl Marx, a man to whom he would become inextricably linked. Vladimir was coming to these ideas independent of Marx, he had not yet read any of the Germans' works on socialism. Lenin's belief in the necessity of violence also came out of this period of Russian history, rather than some far-off set of theories. This, too, was another area where he disagreed with Marx, who claimed that the inevitability of Marxism meant that the revolution would be peaceful. Lenin entered politics at a moment in which student-led revolutionaries, such as his brother, were leading the charge against the authoritarian government, utilizing violence as their only strategy. Sergei Nechev, the founder of the People's Will, described a revolutionary as a dedicated man. He has no personal interests, no private affairs, no emotions, no attachments, no property, and no name. Everything in him is subordinated towards a single thought, a single passion, the revolution. The revolutionary knows that in the very depths of his being, not only in words, but also in deeds, he has broken all the bonds which tie him to the social order and to the civilized world with all its laws, moralities, and customs, and all its generally accepted conventions. He is their implacable enemy, and if he continues to live with them, it is only in order to destroy them more speedily. He must be prepared to destroy everyone and everything that stands in his way. Lenin would go on to serve as the living embodiment of Sergei's principles. But it didn't need to happen that way. At this moment in time, there was still some hope for the young Vladimir Olenov, but he was unable to catch a break. Shortly after his brother was executed, his sister Olga passed away from an illness. It was the third death in five years of a beloved family member. Vladimir somehow managed to carry on as he always had. This included graduating at the top of his class at his new school. In Russia, however, guilt by association can severely damage one's prospects. Universities were gun-shy regarding the younger brother of a man who had been executed for attempting to murder the Tsar. Although Vladimir's grades were good enough to get into the top schools in Russia, 
including his brother's alma mater of the University of St. Petersburg, he had to settle for the University of Kazan. It only took him three months to find trouble. 130 students joined a peaceful student demonstration. He had a minor role, something that the police reports from the day agreed upon. But fear related to his brother's name heightened the consequences. He was one of three at the protest that were arrested and thrown out of school in early December. Like his brother, he was either unwilling or unable to appear meek when the moment called for him to beg forgiveness. After his arresting officer asked him why he was rebelling with a wall of officers in front of them, Lenin calmly replied that the wall is tottering. You only have to push it for it to fall over. For his entire life, Vladimir had defined himself through his intellect. He had read great works beneath the orchard trees. He had made friends through exchanging answers with classmates regarding coursework. He had dominated intellectual discussions and games of chess. Now at age 18, he was suddenly shut out of the educational system. He appealed for readmittance to school, but was harshly rejected. The minister even wrote on the young man's application not to be accepted under any circumstances. He then requested permission to attend school abroad, to which the Minister of Education added to the application, wouldn't this be the brother of the other Olenov? On no account should the request be granted. Hopelessness can be a long and dark tunnel that twists our thoughts and leads to further despair. Vaclav Havel, the Czechoslovakian leader who successfully transitioned his nation from a member of the Communist Soviet Union to a Western democratic nation-state, had a unique take on the idea of hopelessness. Although there was no overlap between the two men, I believe that Havel's approach to the subject is the way that young Vladimir Olenov perceived this moment of despondency. Havel asks, isn't it the moment of most profound doubt that gives birth to new certainties? Perhaps hopelessness is the very soil that nourishes human hope. Perhaps one could never find sense in life without first experiencing its absurdity. Lenin began to educate himself. He tells his biographers that never later in my life, not in prison, in Petersburg, or in Siberia, did I read so much as in the year after my exile to the countryside from Kazan. Leon Trotsky, who would eventually serve as one of Lenin's top advisors, described this time in his boss's life as the crucial time that forged him as a socialist. The book that grabbed his attention the most was a fictitious novel titled what is to be done. The author was jailed for attempting to incite subversion against the Tsar, but somehow the Russians neglected to censor his book. The book's main character, Rakhmatev, dreams of a world where poverty has ceased to exist and everyone lives in total freedom. He forsakes all pleasure in the cause of revolution and disposes of his personal wealth to provide support to impoverished students. He devoted his entire life to his revolutionary ideals, forsaking alcohol and love, each of which would take too much time from his pursuit of knowledge. At one point, Rachmatev reads nonstop for 82 hours. To better pursue his goals, the character goes so far as to divide each and every day up to 15-minute increments in order to stay on task and complete each assigned purpose. Sebastian tells us that Ulanov consciously modeled himself on Rachmatev. Like the main character, he became unswerving in his dedication to his ideals. He was brutally honest, clinically efficient, and coldly rational. Just weeks after his revolution, he would conduct daily six- to seven-hour meetings, where each cabinet member was given speaking allotments of exactly 15 minutes. He began working out vigorously as a gymnast, believing that a revolutionary must dedicate all aspects of his life to prepare his mind, 
and body for the coming days. When his exile stemming from the student protests was complete, his family moved back to Kazan, and Vladimir again found trouble, joining another ban of dissident radicals connected to the Emancipation of Labor Group. It was among these disgruntled men that he first encountered the works of Karl Marx. His mother, still racked with grief regarding Sasha, wasn't yet ready to give up on her youngest son. Worried that he was headed in the same direction as his older brother, she bought a country estate in a last-ditch attempt to isolate her family from the dangerous world of Russian politics. She introduced Vladimir to the life of a country squire. The family was able to secure 160 acres of decent agricultural land. A dutiful son, he tried to make it work over three planting seasons. The experience was so miserable that he only publicly spoke about his life as a squire once, stating for the record that, My mother wanted me to farm. I tried it, but it would not work. Things were not going right. My relations with the peasants got to be abnormal. He referred to this time in his life as his backwater existence. The abnormal relations with the peasants was the nicest way of Lenin saying that they were stealing from him and his family as livestock kept disappearing in the night. Perhaps if the young squire had kept a better eye on the horses and cows, he could have prevented it. But his mind was elsewhere. He again took to reading for long periods of time beneath the trees, he even translated the Communist Manifesto into Russian. After her son began to sneak into a nearby town to attend secret revolutionary meetings, Vladimir's mother pulled the plug on rural life and suggested a career as a lawyer instead. Although the professional field of law would be a significantly better fit for the young intellectual, there was one major problem with this plan. Namely, that he remained legally barred from attending any preparatory schools. Lenin showcased his intelligence and force of will in overcoming this significant barrier. He taught himself, cramming a curriculum that is spread out over four years into a mere 12 months. He also taught himself Latin and ancient Greek. Unsurprisingly, he received top marks on all of the 14 tests required to achieve his degree. He was 22 years old and finally had a chance to earn a living and set aside his brother's shadow once and for all. But that's an easier task said than done. The last name of Olenov still spooked a number of would-be employers. Unbeknownst to him, Lenin had remained under the watch of the Tsar's secret police, the Akhrana. He managed to find a job as an assistant to a lawyer with whom he had regularly played chess through correspondence. The work was sparse and unfulfilling to both his soul and wallet. He represented petty criminals across 14 different cases, only winning one. He defended thieves that had been caught red-handed, peasants who stole to survive, and a tailor accused of blasphemy. That last case showcased the blunt, direct-speaking style for which Lenin became known for during the revolution's earliest years. The tailor, accused of cursing the Blessed Virgin, asked whether he had any chance at avoiding prison. Lenin counseled him, Oh no, none at all I'm afraid of. Despite a steady stream of work, Lenin's mind still wandered towards his personal war against the Tsar. Famine hit the region in 1891, and as was typically the case, the Romanovs did little to help their people. 400,000 starved to death. Those with a social conscience did what they could to help the less fortunate. Anna, one of Vladimir's sisters, raised money for food and visited the sick to distribute medicine. As her actions were discussed around their mother's dinner table, whom Vladimir the lawyer still remained financially dependent upon, Lenin's family couldn't believe his thoughts on the famine. They called him inhumane and inflexible after he informed them that the famine was a good thing, 
for it would weaken the aristocracy and show to the people that capitalism, by definition, hurt more people than it helped. Lenin was guilty of commodifying life, a charge that he and his followers would regularly level at capitalists. To him, the 400,000 deaths were just numbers on a ledger that could be used to justify a new world order, cleansed of capitalism and monarchs. Unlike his nihilistic brother, Lenin had become a strict utilitarian, choosing to believe, as Machiavelli did, that the ends always justified the means. He took his arguments from the dinner table to the streets, contributing to propaganda that was illegally circulated on the streets that linked the famine to the Tsar. In this work, he found purpose and decided to quit his job as a lawyer and move to St. Petersburg in 1893. He was welcomed by a progressive lawyer who put him on the payroll, but only expected him to give occasional legal advice to clients. Lenin was now free to pursue his revolutionary dreams. Sebastian writes that his energy was taken up with making a name for himself in the revolutionary movement as a writer-journalist for obscure illegal publications and speaker at clandestine meetings and lecturer. Again, his career change did not produce immediate results. Lenin was never a charismatic leader or public speaker. His strength was in telling it straight to his audience, but he had to learn how to talk to them first. This was the man who 20 years from now would go on to successfully overthrow one of the world's longest-serving autocracies in a public effort to elevate the peasants to the top strata of society. Lenin had been born into an aristocratic family. Although they were not terribly wealthy, his mother had been able to buy 160 acres so that her son could try out the life of a farmer. During those years, he described his relationship with the peasants as abnormal, foreshadowing that his intelligence would prove to be a hindrance to his cause of aiding the urban poor workers of Russia. Marx, Engels, and other writers were deep philosophical academics. The people that they sought to lead didn't even know how to read. Lenin wrote more than 10 million words in his lifetime which doesn't include his personal correspondence, which show a softer side of the dictator, as well as detailing to us how much he depended upon his mother for financial support throughout his adult life. Even high-end academic institutions rejected his early works for being too boring and dense. Rather than the rapier, Lenin pushed his ideas forward as if they were a battering ram. An examination of his early writings show that Lenin the revolutionary, rather than Lenin the lawyer or country squire, was his real personality. His first published piece discouraged individual acts of terror and rebellion, such as his brother had committed. He justified this rationally, stating that individual acts of terrorism create only short-lived sensation and lead in the long run to an apathy and the passive waiting for another sensation to happen. The works that he did manage to get published were enough to get him invited to some of the most famous salons in the capital. It took considerable time for Western ideas to traverse the Central European plain. Romanov's Peter and Catherine went to great lengths to bring Russia into the modern European age with Peter violently ripping out Russians' beards and requiring them to wear short modern Italian coats during the harshest of winters. Although still incredibly violent, Catherine was a little more delicate in her westernization methods, introducing enlightenment ideas and discussions to the Russian court. Lenin entered the world of Salon politics 100 years after the French Revolution had been inspired in the Salons of Paris, by elite thinkers of the age, including Americans Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. Lenin had found himself within the progressive Russian salon scene and made a name for himself as a tough-nosed debater who viciously verbally dominated his opponents. 
The arguments were similar to those made by France's radical left-wing Jacobins. In fact, Lenin's early writings are a clear-cut mix of Jacobin plus Marxist thought. I happen to know a bit about the competitive activity that is debate. Russian philosophical debate was traditionally done with courtesy to one's opponents, as debaters were expected to showcase impeccable manners and decency suitable to the upper echelons of aristocratic society. Lenin did the opposite, ridiculing his opponent in order to make his adversary feel as though they were a fool. I have never trained anyone to argue the way that Lenin did. He utilized his intelligence to find weaknesses in his opponent's logic, but rather than cleverly pointing them out to the audience, he humiliated the opposition and regularly sought out ad hominem personal attacks regarding their minuscule intelligence level. I'll make an analogy for those of you that are more into sports than forensics. Rather than the beauty of Muhammad Ali, Lenin utilized the brute force of a young Mike Tyson. Sebastian describes his style as domineering, abusive, combative, and often downright vicious. He battered opponents into submission with the deliberate use of violent language which he acknowledged was calculated to evoke hatred, aversion, contempt. Not to convince, not to correct the mistakes of the opponent, but to destroy him, to wipe him and his organization off the face of the earth. Those that disagreed were publicly named as scoundrels, Philistines, Cretans, filthy scum, whores, class traitors, silly old maids, windbags, and blockheads. As his reputation grew, Lenin began to expand his reach outside of the salons of the city's elite. He began to attempt to understand the city's workers, the group that he sought to lead by volunteering as a guest lecturer for newly literate workers who showed an interest in politics. Cognizant of what he was doing, Vladimir Olenov took on the first of what would become many pseudonyms, Fridor Petrovich. The secret police took note of the change in his behavior, remarking at this point that the case for Marxism has been taken over by a certain Olenov, allegedly the brother of the hanged Olenov, who then carried out the defense with a complete command of the subject. Lenin began to aid St. Petersburg's poor, something that he had thumbed his nose at during the famine of 1891. When the Thornton factory went on strike, he went to work writing propaganda for the workers and raised money on behalf of their families. His actions began to snowball, and armed with a growing reputation in socialist circles, Lenin asked the government in April of 1895 for permission to vacation in Central Europe. The official reason he gave was to seek medical treatment at a spa for a stomach disorder, a stress-related illness that he would suffer from for the rest of his life. In reality, though, he had mapped out a four-month trip to visit some of the most influential Russian thinkers in exile. Although he had thought that he was clever in his ruse, the Akrana knew exactly what the young man was up to. The trip was approved in large part because Russia's autocracy wanted to remove him from the chessboard. They believed that he would be forgotten by the workers during his disappearance and thus would come back from Europe in a weaker position. An opportunity might even arise that would allow them to neutralize this rising threat away from his followers in the capital city. Thus, Vladimir's papers for an overseas vacation were approved, his passport was stamped, and he was allowed to travel to Austria, Switzerland, France, and Germany for some rest and relaxation. The secret police kept watch at every step of the way. A report reached the desk of the Akrana's Paris station well before Lenin arrived. It informed them that Vladimir's objective of his visit is to find ways of bringing into the empire revolutionary literature as well to establish contact between revolutionary circles and emigrants abroad. He had two false bottom and double lined suitcases specifically designed to smuggle that literature back into Russia. 
he did manage to get some vacationing done on the trip, which included him being awestruck by the majestic Alps and visiting a Paris nightclub full of scantily clad dancing girls. But above all, he was making positive connections with a network of influential exiled Russians. Each warned him of the all-seeing Okhrana. But Lenin believed that he was far too intelligent to be caught. He had read multiple books on spycraft trade secrets, including how to lose a tail, make invisible ink, write in code, and when and where to use an alias. He traveled back to Russia one month later, midway through September of 1895. The Alkana allowed him to reconnect with the union of the struggle for the liberation of the working class, the first officially Marxist revolutionary organization. Lenin distributed the illegal material he had obtained and voted in favor of launching a party newspaper, Rabachi Dello, the Workers' Cause. In addition to tailing Lenin, the Akana had flipped a dentist to their side. They apparently didn't even have to pull too many teeth in order to turn him into their agent. Thus, Vladimir was in the midst of printing the first copy of the publication when the building was raided. Lenin and the entire editorial board were arrested with the incriminating evidence literally in their hands. He now faced the criminal justice system, not as a wayward student, but as the leader of an anti-Tsarist revolutionary group. If he had asked himself as a lawyer about whether or not he could have avoided jail time, the response would have been, oh no, none at all I'm afraid of. After a year-long prison stay, Lenin was sentenced to a three-year exile in Siberia, something that every would-be revolutionary would need to check off their list in order to earn credibility among their peers. On our next episode, we will check in with Vladimir to see how exile served as a finishing school to complete his Marxist-like ideology. <laughs>